0: So we have questions from across the world, thousands of people in in our virtual audience, and also questions from our live audience here. So we'll take a question from the virtual audience first, and then I will get your questions ready. I'll ask you to raise your hands, and you can come forward and ask your question here. Yes, Diane.
1: Okay, Swamiji, we have questions to start off with about which path, which guru and what duty? And the first questions come from Jayoti, who is a, fish, uh, a physician in Cleveland, Ohio. And he says, How does one select a path to follow? For example, Kriya, Yoga, Vedanta, Bhakti, etc. Singing the Ramayana, for example, brings me to tears routinely since it tugs at the heartstrings. Listening to Vedantic talks is so utterly logical that it appeals to the scientist in me. However, I do not want to dig the proverbial well in too many places looking for water. It appears this is a question that one has to answer for oneself, but I am hoping for your guidance for a way out of this dilemma for those of us who are still living active samsaric lives. Then, which guru? Related to the above question, it is said that even the most knowledgeable guru Cannot actually make one experience the divine Brahman. Yet the need for a guru is emphasized for spiritual guidance. It is also said that for the true seeker, the guru finds the disciple and not the other way around. The definition of a true seeker may not fully apply to many like me, however. Yet it is exactly such people that perhaps need help the most. How would one know it is time? How would one recognize the guru? How should one seek a guru out? If one moves forward to choose a guru, then doesn't one automatically pre-select a particular path? That brings us back to question number one. And then then we have a question from Niraj, who says, I'm writing for guidance for one of the common problems we often hear and read about, that you should follow your duty but I don't
0: know what is my duty. How, I de- how do I decide? So these are questions regarding the spiritual path and guru. You see, all the paths can be fundamentally classified into the four yogas Swami Vivekananda spoke about. Jnana yoga, the path of philosophical discrimination, will be realized that I am Brahman by uh, an intuition, by philosophy. Then there is the path of meditation, Raja Yoga or Patanjali Yoga, where the uh, idea is to meditate, to calm the mind down so that the truth becomes evident, that I am the witness self. Then there is the path of love, which is the most common in in all the religions of the world, where there is faith in God and love and surrender to God and trying to live, live a godly life. Then there's a path of converting our, our actions into spiritual practice. The path of service, uh, karma yoga. All these are different paths to uh, spiritual realization and in the different religions of the world you will find basically these are the main um, types of practices. They may go under various names. There may be various mixtures of these four, but fundamentally these are the four kinds of practices we find in spiritual life. It's interesting to note that we have, even psychology says, we have three kinds of powers. There is the cognitive domain, thinking. There is the cognitive domain, will, doing something. And there is the affective domain, emotion, feeling. These are the three aspects of our psyche. And you can e- easily see that the three of them are related to three of the yogas. One of them is related, the cognitive domain is related to jnana yoga, the effective domain to bhakti yoga, and the cognitive domain to karma yoga. And Raja Yoga, of course, is the power of concentration, of focus. So all of these powers are present in each of us. Swami Vivekananda, he pointed out that people are different. The same size shirt will not fit fit any two persons. So people are different. We have different natures. Some are more active. Some are more contemplative. Some are by nature more rational and uh, inquisitive. Uh, Some are um, devotional. They they find it much easier to love and surrender. So depending on our own nature, the kind of path we take, uh, it depends a great deal on, on our own nature. The, the safest and the most comprehensive path Swami Vivekananda recommended for everybody, he said, the harmony of the four yogas, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, and jnana yoga. It is the harmony of the four yogas that is the path that is most suitable for our modern age. In our lives, we should have a component of a philosophy, of reasoning, of understanding. We should have uh, a component of meditation daily meditation and a component where you love and worship and adore God in whatever form that is your tradition or what appeals to you and also make sure that our lives are of use to others uh, in karma yoga so all of these four yogas are part of our spiritual practice if you see the emblem of the Ramakrishna order you find it I think here in, in, in the uh... lectern emblem of the Ramakrishna order, which Swami Vivekananda designed here uh, in the Vedanta Society of New York. Uh, He said that uh, the emblem represents all the four aspects. You have the uh, wavy waters, which represent karma. You have the sun of knowledge rising in the back, Jnana Yoga. You have the lotus of bhakti. And then you have the encircling serpent, which represents the power of kundalini, which in turn represents yoga, uh, uh, Patanjali yoga, the power of concentration. So by, by understanding, by devotion, by action, and by meditation, one can realize God. This is what he recommended. Now, depending on our nature, the particular mix that we will follow will vary. You start off with all four, and you will see over time you may be more attracted to Jnana Yoga. You may be a bhakta. You may be more attracted to Bhakti Yoga. You see, you notice within yourself that reciting the Ramayana brings tears to your eyes. But that says something about your nature. So one may have, one may develop a tendency towards the of, towards one of these paths. And the others should also be kept. Even though you may not be particularly attracted to a particular path, but should be kept as a part of one's spiritual repertoire. The reason is, even if we are not, not very comfortable or it's not very easy for us to do one thing. Somebody says, I love working, I love serving people, but don't ask me to meditate. But invariably, the Swami will ask you to meditate. <laughs> somebody wants to meditate a lot, and he's told to go and, uh, go and work. Swami Ashokananda said, when I tell you to work, I can see the rebellious look on your face. You think perhaps that the Swami does not think highly of my, my cap- capabilities as a spiritual seeker. Perhaps he thinks I am not ready for meditation. Well, I will show him. And then Ashokanji says, and you will show me, but not in the way you think. So, <laughs> Often the paths which we are uncomfortable with or which we are not capable of doing so far, those are the paths which, will, which are of maximum benefit to us. Because those are the sides of our personality we have not yet developed. It's good to operate in a zone of minimal discomfort. In a zone of absolute comfort, growth is not possible. In a zone of great discomfort, again, growth is disturbed. But some discomfort where you are pushing yourself a little beyond your uh, present capabilities, that's when we grow. So the harmony of the four yogas is to be kept in one spiritual life. Guru... Is very important in spiritual life, especially in the Indian traditions. One reason is these are knowledge traditions, and knowledge always requires a, a teacher. In fact, one of the ways in which we conceive of God or Brahman in Hinduism is as the Adi Guru, the first Guru, the Guru of Gurus. And in fact, the famous uh, Guru Stotram is there Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara. Guru Param Brahma Now, whom should you select as a Guru? Really speaking, Guru is selected for you already. That's what we hear from our tradition. But certain criteria are mentioned in our um, in, in the Vedantic texts, in the Upanishads. Shrotriya Brahmanishta Akamahata. One is the person must be well versed in the tradition. Which tradition? In Vedanta, we will say Vedantic tradition. Must be well-learned well in the Upanishads, Gita, in the Brahma Sutras, in Vedantic texts, and, able, and must have the ability to transfer this knowledge. But it need not be limited to the Vedantic tradition. Whatever tradition, the guru should represent some tradition. There's a lot of uh, discussion about this. Why can't a person who has realized the truth, um, in a person who is uh, illumined, does not belong to any particular tradition. Why can't such a person be my guru? Well, it can be, but really it's very difficult to know who is illumined and who is not. And therefore, when you go out, say, for example, you go out to um, a store to buy something, you would rather buy, um, say, a computer or, or anything, a, a stove or, or a piece of equipment, which has the brand, you know, an accepted brand, an Apple or something like that, uh, which, which, you, which people trust and which people believe and which has delivered the goods again and again. So there's some quality control. You know that when it comes from this particular brand, there is some assurance of quality. If you're going to buy a computer, for example, you go to the shop and you buy a computer. But if you see a guy standing outside the sh- store and saying, hey, come here. I made this computer in my garage and it's better than any computer you will get in that store. Now, mind you, he may be right. He just may be right. Who knows? But he may not be right also. And you have only that much money to spend. Now, almost always you will go and buy something from the store because there's a guarantee of safety there. Now in the same way, we have these traditions, there are Vaishnava traditions, there are non-dualist traditions, there are dualist traditions, there are Shakta traditions, Shaiva traditions, there are traditions in Christianity, various traditions, in the different religions of the world, in Buddhism, in other religions of the world, where something has continued for centuries, for millennia, we talked about the Buddha today, 2,500 years, Now, this tradition has continued, and there are reports of enlightened persons in this tradition, Year after year, century after century. So you know it works. So the person who's teaching you must belong to some tradition and must be learned in at least in that tradition, must have the ability to transfer the knowledge of the tradition. That's one, but that's not enough. Second, there are scholars who are learned in the tradition, but does that person practice it in his or her own life? Second thing is Brahmanishta. Is the entire life built around that teaching? Is the entire li- life built around spirituality? Brahmanishta means uh, dedicated to, established in Brahman. If the person is illumined, nothing like it. If the person is an enlightened person, nothing like it. That's best, of course. But that's very rare. And that's very difficult for us to verify. What we can do is look at the person's life. Is that person leading a spiritual life? Is this primarily a spiritual person? Or is spiritual teaching a part-time job for that person? Uh, So Brahmanishta means a person must be a full-time dedicated, at least a spiritual seeker, if not a person who is already enlightened. And the third criterion for a guru is Akamahata. Literally translates into not injured or not destroyed by desire. Does the guru want anything from you? If it says, sure ways to God-realization. $100 course. (laughs) Crash course in meditation. $50. Come and uh, I'll teach you meditation in in three days. You may crash, but I don't know if you'll really learn how to. And there is some utility there, maybe. Again, I'm not denying it, because uh, uh, the person may know certain techniques and is teaching that technique. But a general, a good rule of thumb is Um, the guru should not be making millions out of uh, the guru business. Uh, There's somebody who joked, he said, there's only one business uh, which is not affected by Wall Street, which goes ups and downs in the economy, and that's the religion business. So it should not be a business. It should not be uh, be, uh, where the guru wants something from you. That's why the idea was all knowledge and especially spiritual knowledge is sacred and therefore free. In the traditional ashrams in India the guru would actually support the disciples staying in the ashram. It'd take the help of the king or the other rich benefactors in society but those who were studying and, and learning in the ashram they were not expected to pay anything to the guru. Only after completion of studies they would, might, might give a gift, a guru dakshina. So these are the three cr- criterion um, Shrotriya, well-learned in a particular tradition. Where does this person come from? You should ask that question. Second, completely dedicated to spiritual life. And third is, does not want anything material from me. Okay. And the last question was about, uh, what is my duty in life? Well, there is a in traditional scriptures you find the concept of swadharma your own dharma that was easily defined in ancient india not so easy today why was it defined in ancient india because they had a rigid social structure there were castes and there was this what is called ashrama that means stages of life so there were four castes in general uh... the priestly the the warrior caste and the business class and a caste and the uh, laborer caste. The four castes and the four stages of life, where you were a student, and then you were a householder, then you were a retired person, and then you were a sannyasi, a, a, a renunciate. Now, the idea of duty was built around this structure. How did it work? It worked like this. There's an equation. What is your duty in life, swadharma? They will say, ashramadharma. First, the five components, ashrama dharma. Ashrama dharma means the the duty of your station in life. Whether you are a student or a householder, your duty will change. The second one is a varna dharma. That means the duty determined by the caste, by your family profession, for example. What you choose to do, in those days, it was there was very little choice. People sort of went into the profession of the parents and all that. So, Are you a priest? Are you an administrator? Are you a businessman? Uh, Are you a a, a, a worker? Um, What are you? So that is another component of your duty. The third one was Varnashrama Dharma. The conjunction of the two. Are you a householder who is an administrator or a warrior? Then you have a duty. Are you a householder who is a priest? Then you have some, some other duty. So for example, when Krishna and Arjuna speak, Arjuna is asking questions about what he should do and what he should not do. Now, in this matrix which I'm drawing for you, look at where Arjuna is placed. He's a householder. And he's a kshatriya, a warrior. So he's a warrior householder. So he has some particular duties. If he was a priest and a householder, he would have some other duties. If, if he was of a business uh, family and uh, and a householder, he would have some other duty. So varna ashrama Dharma. The third one is called Vishesha Dharma. Vishesha Dharma means specific, um, specific duties which come with your particular situation in life. So for example, Arjuna for that time being is a general in the, in the Pandava army. He, w- he was not earlier and he would not be later on. But at that particular time, he's a general in the Pandava army. And uh, so being a general gives him some special duties. He's not just a warrior. He's not just any other householder. He is also the general of the army. I remember a lesson in this. I was taught this a long time ago when I was um, appointed the head, the principal of a college. Uh, that, that was um, a long time back, 2002. And I was, as I said, quite naive. So I was made the principal, and then they said, so you are, from now on you are in charge of the college. And I always had this monastic identity very, very strong in me. I said, uh, look, I don't care about all this. I'm a monk, and that's it for me. Then the principal who was retiring before me, he sat me down. He was not a monk. He was a professor, a uh, um, householder. But he handed over charge to me. He sat me down. And in private, nobody knows about this for the first time speaking out. He said, look, I was not yet a swami, I was a brahmachari. (laughs) He said, look, Maharaj, I understand and appreciate your monastic ideals. But also remember, as long as you are sitting in this chair, you are the principal of the college and people look up to you. And as long as you you have taken up this role, you must play this role too. You cannot say that, oh, I'm just a monk, I'm not the principal. So that's called Vishesha I was not the principal earlier, and I'm not the principal of the college anymore. But it, as long as you are there, you are expected to fulfill a role. Now look at the roles that we fulfill in life. There are specific roles in situations. You may be the manager of a company. There are duties for that. You may be a father or a mother. There are duties for that. You may be a son or a daughter. There are duties for that. You may be a friend, a member of the community. If you accept that you are a citizen of the country, if you accept that I'm a member of this community, if these are the roles you accept, yes, then you cannot refuse to fulfill the obligations which come with that role. You have to. What is the connection with spiritual life? Remember, all of this is meant for spiritual development. Do it positively, do it seriously. It helps in spiritual development. Howsoever little, but it does help. So this is called vishesha Dharma. And the last one is sadharan Dharma. General Dharma, which are truth, unselfishness, self-control. Something that human qualities everybody must have. These fall within the universal Dharma of everybody. So what have i said the question was what is your dharma and uh, the answer again in traditional old india will not work so easily today was swadharma your own dharma is equal to ashrama dharma varna dharma varnashrama dharma vishesha dharma and sadhana dharma the five components your station, your station in life your role in life, the combination of your station and role, uh, then your specific situation in life, and the general qualities of a human being. So these are all part of your duty. Now, this may not be specifically applicable to anybody, uh, let alone in the world, uh, even in India today, because the old system is broken or twisted now. But it can throw some light on what I'm supposed to do now. A simple answer would be, Uh, a principle which I take anything that takes you Godward towards spiritual realization is your duty anything that takes you away from God is not your duty yes all right Um, yes there's a question please come forward you have to speak in the microphone please tell us your name I know your name but (laughs) for the internet audience please sit I'm Bill please sit
1: When we read the Gospel of Ramakrishna, over and over again he says, God has become all this. He's become all beings, Serve Jiva as Shiva, and we've heard from Holy Mother that Ramakrishna is definitely an Advaitin. But these statements that God has become all doesn't sound like the world is a rope which we mistake for a snake. So, my question is
0: Is Ramakrishna a Shankara Advaitin? Okay, difficult question. But thank you, Bill. <laughs> but these are the questions that I enjoy. First of all, um, a traditional Advaitin would say, would summarize his position as Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya Jeeva Brahmaevanapara, which means the rope snake example which you mentioned Brahman alone is real, the world is an appearance. And who am I? Real or an appearance? You are real. You are none other than Brahman. Brahman is real, the world is an appearance, and you, the individual being, you are actually Brahman. Now when Ramakrishna says, everything in the world is Brahman, is God, and worship everything as Shiva, Jnana, Jiva, Seva, worship all Jivas in the knowledge that it is Shiva, It can very well be interpreted in terms of traditional Advaita. Why? You said that it doesn't seem to quite match the rope snake example. It does, actually. We, the way we are seeing the world, how do we see the world right now? Unless you are enlightened. Right now, the way we understand the world is these are human beings. Some of them are my friends. Some of them I don't like. Some of them I like a lot. Some of them I'm indifferent to. And these are birds, these are animals, these are insects, these are insentient things like tables and chairs and buildings and atoms and uh, galaxies. This is how we see the universe. We actually do not see the universe as God, Brahman. We read about it, we hear lectures about it, but we do not see it. We are seeing the snake, we are not seeing the rope. Even on Ramakrishna's position, actually when he says everything is God here, we don't see it that way. It sounds nice. It's, n- it's, it's nice to think about it. But actually we don't feel it. He feels it. For him it's a reality. He sees the rope. We see the snake. And the snake has to be corrected by knowledge that it is all Brahman. So from, an, from that perspective, it matches uh, the traditional Advaita position. A traditional Advaitin would find no fault in Sri Ramakrishna's sayings. Uh, would be uh, happy with it. But then there are lots of things which Sri Ramakrishna said which cannot be so conveniently packaged away as traditional Advaita. Uh, somebody, it's in the letters of Swami Turyananda. I think it was Swami Sharvananda who wrote to Swami Turyananda what was the philosophy of Sri Ramakrishna. Somewhat like your question. Was he a non-dualist? Was he a qualif- qualified monist? Was he a dualist? Advaitin? Vishishtadvaitin, Dvaitin, or something else. And it's a long reply which Swami Turiyanandaji has given. Wonderful reply. It's worth reading. Where he discusses various facets of what Sri Ramakrishna has taught. And then he says, but if you push me, so give me a straight answer. What is the philosophy of Sri Ramakrishna? Then he says, I will have to say the philosophy of Sri Ramakrishna is realize God by whatever means possible. In Bengali, it's even more direct. By whatever means possible, realize God. That, at the core, (laughs) seems to be what Sri Ramakrishna said. But he gave a lot of emphasis on on Advaita because he said, uh, base yourself on Advaitic knowledge and then practice whatever you want to practice. One of the things he said. But then he also put, put tremendous emphasis on bhakti, love of God. But good question. One more question from the internet audience now. Yes, we'll, we'll come to you. There, there was a question here also? Yeah, there too. Now a question from the internet audience.
1: This question is from Vishesh. In his discourses, Swamiji mentions that everything we experience in our lives are objects such as the body, thoughts, memories, and that even the sense of I is also an object. If the sense of I is an object I'm aware of when awake, it must be in the waking mind. How then do we claim that it was I who was in deep sleep? How do we have the memory of the blankness of deep sleep in the waking mind? This question has been troubling me, and I would really appreciate it if he could answer this in the next.
0: That's a subtle question. I'll repeat it for you in case you missed it. He says in Vedanta, all of these are objects for consciousness. Quite clearly, look around you. Everything that you experience is an object and you are the subject in your experience. Isn't that true? If you look at your body, that's the same thing. The body that you experience is an object in your awareness. The mind that we experience... If you experience the mind, then mind is also an an object. And in the mind is the ego, the I. I. If you feel it right now, I. If you feel it, if you experience it within yourself, no matter how subtle, it's still an object. Now this I disappears in deep sleep. And yet, when I wake up, in deep sleep we don't feel I am sleeping. Of course not. If you feel that, you are not sleeping. (laughs) It's just a blankness. But when we wake up, you say that I slept. And yet that I was not there. It's an object which was not there in deep sleep. Now the question is, how do you reconcile this? I, who am not there, I claim that I slept. It's a very subtle question. And if you can answer this question and grasp the answer to this question, at the very least you have grasped Advaita. And at best you will get enlightened. That's how powerful this question is. Here is, the question points to a fault line in Maya. There is a crack in this illusion we are living. And this question actually points to that that fault line. If you investigate there, Maya does not want you to investigate. She will direct you here and there. But if you investigate there, the crack widens till the whole illusion disappears and the truth is revealed to you. The answer to the question is this. If you only have understood the question, then only the answer will make sense. The answer to the question is this. That I which which was an object in your waking state, that I which was not there in deep sleep, it is true That I did not experience deep sleep. And yet upon waking up, when the mind starts functioning, that I comes up, it claims that falsely, I was asleep. It claims that I was asleep. What does it claim? It takes the experiences which are still there. Uh, There is a witness which recognizes the deep sleep experience that witness is not the eye the witness is the witness of the eye also right now when you feel i aham uh-huh, i what is feeling the eye right now that witness it continues when the eye also shuts down i means the, this this eye shuts down and the, the vertical eye also shuts down in deep sleep that witness continues and the experience of deep sleep, here's a technical point, the experience of deep sleep is recorded in Ajnana, in the Anandamaya Kosha. The exact, the answer you'll find in uh, Vedanta Sar, It says, Ati sukshma bhi ajnana vritti bhihi by an extremely subtle movement of Ajnana, Anandamaya Kosha. This experience of deep sleep is also recorded. Now the interesting thing happens is, when you wake up, the mind starts working, And I comes up. And those experiences are there. And the I falsely, mischievously, coolly takes up the experiences of that and said, I was asleep. The ego was not there. The witness experienced the real Atman, the Sakshi, experienced the deep sleep experience. Illumine that. That's why deep sleep, you see the paradox of deep sleep. Each of us say that we experience deep sleep. Yet that experience was not of the subject-object kind of experience which we're having right now. Because we cannot actually say that I was there and I experienced deep sleep. I was sleeping deeply. No, we, do, we can't say that. And yet we cannot in all honesty de- deny that we have all experienced deep sleep. Do you see this? Put these two facts together. Then something startling emerges. What experienced deep sleep? What is it in you that experience deep sleep? The witness. Huh? the witness. And instead of answering that quickly, can you actually trace it back? Can you try to feel it? Because that real witness is right now. It's present right here. Can you get some clarity about it? What will happen is, you will be free of the ego. You will realize, I am not I. Shankaracharya when he sings look at the c- contradictory uh, nature of that line. He says I am not the mind, I am not the intellect I am not the memory they are all objects. But funnily enough he says I am not the ego. Ego means I. Literally if you translate that, put it on paper it will read I am not I. We sing it happily and think it's very profound. But what a stunning thing he has said. I am not I. <coughs> Think about this. I, the one which is... Right now you say, I am sitting in this room and I am listening to the talk. Clearly, the ego is saying it and the ego is right. The ego is right here. But that ego, when it says, I experienced deep sleep, it's a false statement. And yet something did experience deep sleep. Put these two facts together and something startling will reveal itself mm. Mm. So very good question yes so reflected consciousness does not exist in reality the reflected consciousness does not exist in deep sleep mm. no we cannot speak like this because uh, there's a it's being recorded for the uh, purposes of uh, the internet now so i'll leave leave it there i'll, I'll come to you Here is a question. You had a question. Please tell us your name.
2: Swamiji, my name is Rama. And I'm going back to the question, uh, the previous question you answered about the five um, uh, stages of duties that you just spoke about.
0: Five components of swadharma. Uh, Five components components of swadharma. swadharma. Mm.
2: So, um, So in the modern life, even if you're performing those duties, uh, it just sucks all your energy. And uh, how do you, while performing duties, make it something that actually provides spiritual growth? Because you can perform these very duties sincerely, um, and yet you may not feel that they translated to you growing spiritually. And you don't have time in any other way to do anything else other than perform your swadharma. Yes. So how do you go about
0: that? It's a good question. You might say, Swami, you are a Swami. So your whole swadharma, all your roles are spiritual roles. So you can happily speak about spiritual life, doing this and that. But we are students and teachers and mothers and fathers and, and so many things in society. And all of that sucks energy and time. How can I convert those things into spiritual practice? Is it possible? Indeed it is possible. Swami Vivekananda once walking in Almora with Turianandaji, he said, Hari Bhai, this time I have started a new path. This time, that means in this age, I have carved out a new path for the youngsters who who are going to come after us. They will work for the welfare of others and thereby they will uh, develop themselves spiritually. I'm paraphrasing. This is not the language he used. This conversion of our day-to-day activities into spiritual practice, this is a central teaching of of Swami Vivekananda. Sister Nivedita said, henceforth no division between the uh, sacred and secular. To labor is to pray. To have and hold is as sacred a trust as to renounce and quit. The shop floor, the, the factory floor, and and the office, and the, and the place of business, they are as fit a place for the meeting of man and God as the cell of a monk. How can we do that? Every work that we do, at the beginning of that work, remember God, whichever form you worship, that my Lord, this is my dharma, my swadharma in front of me, my, the role you have assigned me to play. I'm going to play this role and mentally I offer it to you. Like a flower I offer at the feet of God, I offer this action at your feet. At the end of the work, when you're finished, again remember the Lord and you offer offer that. Slowly the attitude will be everything that I'm doing. It may be I'm doing my job in the office. It may be that I'm taking care of children in the home or in the school. It may be I'm just doing the same worldly activities. But internally there'll be a tremendous transformation. That I am doing everything for my beloved Krishna or Rama or or, or Christ, whatever. Whichever form of God you are worshipping, concentrate on that, that I am doing these activities as worship to God. And make sure more and more, I don't want anything from that for myself. I am doing it as a service to God. So two things. One is connect the activity to God. And second is, a component of unselfishness as much as you can bring in. Remember, common sense. If you are holding a job, that does not mean that tomorrow onwards, you'll I'll do the job, but I won't take salary from you anymore. It's not sustainable. <laughs> you can't do that. Here, uh, we are running an ashram, so even as a monk, I have to take donations. So how much more so when you are out in the world and you are working, you will definitely take your sal- salary in, uh, and, and earn what you have to earn. But that apart... There should be no other particular uh, selfish desire behind act, that action. You know, Selfish desire is like, by this job, by this uh, role, by this uh, uh, salary, or by this promotion, I will be fulfilled. That's a worldly attitude. I will be fulfilled by God alone, by God realization alone, by spirituality alone. And these all these things will help me. The duty which we have in life is not against spirituality. When we think of it as duty, that something that I have to do and finish it somehow, then I'll do, I'll do my spiritual practices. Then it becomes a terrible burden. Swami so Vivekananda quotes the Ashtavakra. Humanity is scorched by the midday sun of duty. <laughs> not that way, not that way. Work as a free agent. This is in front of me. It's an opportunity to do something. It's an opportunity for spiritual practice. There was a quote yesterday. A devotee um, showed me a quote on her computer, different wonderful quotes. One of them was from a Japanese uh, Zen master, Dogen. And it says, if you if this if you think that the self confirms 10000 things you are in delusion but if you think 10000 things confirm the self you are enlightened now that person who showed me she said hmm i think well, i don't know what that means really you know what that means it's a very profound truth 10000 things means your life everything in your life, what you see, what you hear, what you do, what you smell, what you touch, what you enjoy, what you suffer, if you think that's what you are doing in life, all of this, you say yes, you are del- in delusion according to toge. If all of them point back to the spirit within you, then you are enlightened. If 10,000 things point back to God within you, so one way in the in a bhakti way, in a karma yoga way, if 10,000 things of your life, if you can connect to God, if God is the golden thread running through all of that, then, even if you're not enlightened, you are well on your way to enlightenment. If that does not appeal to you, if you are impersonalistic by nature, non-dualistic by nature, then you say, put the word God out of the equation, I, the pure consciousness, uh, what you eat, it, it... It just is something that is revealed to you in your consciousness. What you do is revealed to you in in your consciousness. Everything that happens in life shines in your awareness. Use that to become aware of the awareness. Like you would use a mirror. Do you use a mirror to look at the mirror? Or do you use the mirror to look at your face? When you're looking at the mirror, are you looking at the glass? Usually not. (laughs) You're looking at the reflection. Similarly, everything in the life, life is a mirror which reveals God to you. When you're looking at life and say, it reveals life to me, mostly unhappy, then you're looking at the glass in the mirror. You're not looking at the reflection. Okay. One more question from the Internet audience. Uh,
1: This question is (coughs) from Rupak. I try to follow the six steps you have taught in your Drib Vyshya Viveka lecture series. (laughs) I sit for meditation every morning, but when I try internal text-based meditation, external things come to me as input. I can close my eyes but can't close my ears. Birds chirping, clocks ticking come to my ears even though no thought is present or just the Vedantic text is present at that moment. I feel that external and internal is getting mixed up for me. As I understand, this body-mind, though nothing but a unit of some atoms, has a special capability through the witness consciousness that is enabling this piece of matter to hear, see, touch, smell, taste, and think. Is it really possible to have the internal text-based meditation? My own breathing movement also comes as a distraction. Can you please let me know if I'm doing something wrong which I can correct?
0: Very good question. <laughs> Very good question. Do you know what it refers to? In the text, Drik Drishya Viveka, towards the end, there are six meditation techniques. And he's talking about the first two of those meditation techniques. What are the meditation techniques? It's a nice segue into this question from the, uh, the earlier discussion. You know the 10,000 things in life? Mm-hmm. What the technique tells you is take any thought Whatever comes to your mind, if it's 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, or a rose is a red flower, a thought comes to your mind. Instead of concentrating on the thought, become aware of the thought shining in your awareness. When the thought comes up, instead of we get engrossed in the thought, and then we jump from one thought to another. But what the meditation technique tells you is, take the thought and immediately become aware of yourself as the witness to that thought become aware of yourself as the witness of that thought. Can you do that? It's subtle, but not difficult. Now, what he's saying is, that the, the next step after that, when you become aware of yourself as a witness to that thought is, now you go to a text-based meditation, which says, I am unattached. I am unattached means, that witness which I am, is unattached. Things come and go in its light. It is not. It's, it's, they don't stick to it. I am unattached. I am non-dual. I am self-effulgent. These are obvious facts. Once you have got the witness, clarity about the witness, all these things will be obvious facts. Just you are repeating a fact to yourself. Now the problem which uh, this person has re- referred to is that, Swami, when I think about a thought, I have to think about a thought, right? I am the witness of the thought, but then the clock is ticking. <laughs> <laughs> and, then the, and then the birds are chirping. And then it's hot. And then, a lot of other things come into my mind. A thought might be very difficult, elusive to get hold of. Lots of other things are crowding into my mind. So, what is the way out? What do you think? correct absolutely the answer from that gentleman was witness of everything you are not just the witness of the thought the thought is not important if the clock is ticking wonderful wonderful use it immediately the clock ticks when it, it when it goes tick tock i am the witness of the tick tock when the bird chirps outside i am the witness of the chirping bird of the chirping of the bird any movement, anything that registers in your awareness is a mirror to your awareness. It reflects you back to your awareness. I have known of persons who get into a kind of internal intoxication just by listening to the sound of a clock t- t- ticking. Yes, it's possible. Absolutely possible. Hours can pass because the, the ticking of a clock is a very powerful device, it's rhythmic. It's monotonous. Every tick points you back to the witness consciousness. And you tend to get absorbed. There's no escape from the witness consciousness if you're listening to a ticking of a a clock. If you say that, well, first of all, you have to understand what the witness consciousness is. You have to have clarity about that. That's one thing. That's why the Dhrigrishya Viveka text is there. You see, the Holy Mother, she used it in a different way she told one of the disciples that, my child, listen to the ticking of a clock. Repeat your mantra with that regularity. With that calm, steadiness and regularity, keep on repeating the mantra. I'll tell you an experience. It was in the Himalayas. (coughs) We were studying um, Ashtavakra, a very high text of non-dual Vedanta. And the Swami who was teaching us there was a word, nairantariena, without break, in the text he was teaching us. And we were a group of, motley group of monks. Some lived in huts, some in caves, and some had long beards, some were shaven-headed. Mostly we were a, a very scruffy lot. So we were all sitting ar- around his feet, and he was teaching us. When he came to the word nairantariena, without break, he closed the book, and he looked at us, and he said, before the class I was thinking, how do I explain this word? And then in front, in front of him you have to see, the ganges is roaring past just in front about 40 50 feet below it's mountainous you understand the ganges is roaring past he says immediately my eyes fell on that and i thought just like without break the stream of water is roaring continuously flowing fast in front without any break at all like that should be the thought should be the thought of the self should be your establishment in the self in 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 advaita vedanta Ashtavakra. and that night a monk you know he went for meditation and he sat in meditation and he could not stop meditating throughout the night because the roaring of the ganges next outside that monk's hut that thought kept kept coming to him and because the roaring is without break he couldn't stop It was so powerful, (laughs) hour after hour passed, um, you know, um, six hours, seven hours. So that's without break. Anything in the world, especially like the ticking of a clock or the flowing of water, can be an excellent uh, reminder of your witness status. Yes. A question from the audience here. You have to come forward and speak in the microphone. No, first sit and take up the microphone. So please sit. Please sit. Because it's being recorded, yeah. that's why. Okay. Please sit down.
3: Sit? Okay. The question, two questions before... In the microphone. Uh, two questions before when we are talking about I my, I think in course of meditation and prayer, subject and object both disappear. I cannot come. When you meditate, when you pray, we do not ask God to anything, I, or who I am. We just, those subject and object disappear automatically in course of prayer and meditation, I think. Another question, when Bill was asking. That is an excellent question. I it little bit bothers in my life. Living in an existential world, the socio-moral vocabularies are so strong today. Even you try to pray to God, to in search of mystic, mysticism, touching the. Uh, spirituality to go to real from unreal, in that case, existential world, their moral vocabulary, socio-moral vocabulary is so powerful and guided the way it is hard. People could understand us, what we are doing, and what we are looking for on plain view. Like you are a person, you are Shamiji, we all know you are a spiritual seeker, but I am an ordinary person, okay? And the moral vocabulary is so powerful, people misread me. They think they read me wrongly. That's why how could we cross that boundary when you are talking about God and we are in search of mysticism that going from unreal to real, then that Moral vocabulary association I think,
0: com. I think I understand the question. Yes. The first part about meditation and the subject and the object disappearing, I think that was more of a comment. There, was not, there wasn't a question there. That's very good. And the second thing is about other people misunderstanding spiritual seekers. One thing is that unless a person is a seeker to some extent, it's no use talking about these things to, to such a person. Uh, so person, uh, it will not be real to that person. But then the truth is that people are seekers. There are so many people who are seekers. And if you want to communicate with them, if there's even a little bit of genuine questioning, you have to understand the vocabulary. You rightly pointed out the vocabulary is important. You have to understand what are the terms that person is using and on what terms you can relate to that person. So, yes, a little bit of adjustment you have to do. But it only works with the person who is interested. If a person is not interested, then, uh, then we are also not interested. Vedanta is very patient. If you are not interested, we say, fine, go and do the thing. There must be something you are interested in the world. So go and do it, pursue it, and we will wait. This life, next life, life after that, many, many lives hence. There is no hurry. Swami Vivekananda's language. He says, take your time. There is no hurry. (laughs) (laughs) He he was half serious when he said that. (laughs) All right, a question from the Internet audience.
1: This is from Arvind, who is in Brisbane, Australia. In one of your talks recently, you mentioned your discussion with the... In one of your talks recently you mentioned your discussion with the Buddhist monks at a conference where the monks went into a, went into a huddle after you invoked neti-neti. I have a question about the nature of consciousness in the two schools of thought. From what I have gleaned from listening to your talks, it seems in the Vedanta school, consciousness is primary with the attributes of sat Chitananda. In some of your talks, you have mentioned that the mind borrows this consciousness much like the moon borrows its light from the sun. On the other hand, my understanding of the Buddhist school is that they have developed the idea of anatman, no-self. Thus, the Buddhist school says shunyata is primary. If my understanding is correct, then, in such a case, consciousness is not primary and must be generated or developed somehow from shunyata. That is my question. How does consciousness arise or form from Shunya in the Buddhist view? Maybe you can give a short answer to this question or if you could point me to some book that I can read.
0: All right, always my favorite question. (laughs) (laughs) The contrast between um, the Hindu schools of thinking and Buddhist schools. Let me set out the contrast first before attempting to resolve it. The dualistic schools of Hindu thought by which I mean, for example, the Nyaya, the Vaisheshika, the Sankhya, the Yoga, these schools of Hindu thought, they claim that in addition to the physical body, sthula sharira, we have a subtle body, sukshma sharira, and that is not subject, it's not a matter of belief. We experience it all the time. We experience life and thought and memories. All the time we are experiencing it. That which you are experiencing as a first-person private experience within yourself, That's the subtle body. So we have a subtle body, sukshma sharira. And in addition to that, we have uh, the atman, the self. Self with a capital S. The physical body dies at death. The subtle body goes on for life after life. But when you are enlightened, the subtle body also falls off and you realize you are the unchanging atman. So physical body, subtle body, atman the self. Now along comes the Buddhist and says, physical body and subtle body are matters of experience. Where is this precious Atman of yours? Physical body, series of changes. Subtle body, mind and intellect and memory, another series of changes. Beyond this, what else exists? Everything is temporary, transient. Everything is momentary. Everything is empty. The word which he used, Shunyata, emptiness. Empt- they are, they are uh, self-nature, empty of self-nature. That means there is no inherent unchanging nature to anything. That was the Buddhist insight. And it's a very powerful challenge. A very powerful challenge. And the Buddha said, Anitya, Anityam, Sarva Manityam. Temporary, transient, transient. Everything is transient. Everything goes away kshanikam kshanikam sarvam kshanikam not only that everything goes away you see, everything goes away we know we, everybody dies and we also will have to die that does not really bother us as long as it, everything stays for just enough for my, my purpose if the house li- is uh, can stay st- steady for 50 years or 100 years, it's good for me I'm going to use it for 50 years or 100 years after that, it doesn't matter if the body lives for 30, 40, 50, 60 or 80 years good enough for me because uh, um, I'll do whatever I can in that period of time. If the cookie melts in my mouth and is gone in 10 seconds, that's also good enough for me because I can taste it in those 10 seconds. So temporary is okay with us. We really don't mind temporary. Uh, impermanent, we don't mind. But Buddha goes on further, sport that he is. He says, kshanikam, kshanikam. Not only temporary, momentary, momentary. Everything changes from moment to moment. It does not stay steady for let alone for decades and centuries, it does not stay steady from one second to the next. That may sound like a startling claim from our common sense point of view, but as we go on, modern science more and more has shown that everything is a whirling mass of particles, a whirling mass of change, continuously, all around us. Just from our perspective, some things seem more steady than others. Kshanikam, kshanikam, sarvam kshanikam. And hence, shunyam shunyam sarvam shunyam void, void, all is void and then finally dukkham dukkham sarvam dukkham hence because because it is transient because it is momentary because it is void everything is of the nature of dukkha suffering if you feel the suffering you are feeling the reality if you feel pleasure and happiness you are deluded Because there was suffering before it, there is suffering at the end of it, and there is suffering underneath it. Any joy that we have. So real spoilsport. The Buddha. The hard truth. Now, in this mass of change, where is this permanent Atman you are speaking about? So the Buddhist launches a two-pronged attack. One is on your permanent soul, your immortal soul. There is no such thing, the Buddhist says. And the second one is, the, uh, the partner to your immortal soul, the poor God, an immortal God, unchanging reality called God, this launches an attack on that too. Where is this God you speak about? Both are equally are impossibilities. An immortal God, sitting somewhere way up in heaven, where? And your own immortal soul you speak about, Atman, where? You can't prove it. And thus began a thousand-year battle between, literally a thousand years, from around 2005, a little after the Buddha, when the philosophical schools of Buddhism began to grow strong, till the disappearance of Buddhism from India around 800-900 AD. So for more than a thousand years, there was a philosophical debate, a battle between the Hindu schools and the Buddhist schools. And it was good because it led to a flowering of philosophy very sophisticated philosophy developed over a thousand years and you have got text after text the Hindus trying to defend the immortal soul Atman defend the existence of God and the Buddhists attacking both the great Hindu logician Udayan Acharya uh, around 10th century AD there is the famous story of how he goes to he fought against the Buddhists he had he has two classic books which are still studied one is called Atmatattva Viveka, where he tries to prove with extremely subtle reasoning that there must be a permanent, unchanging consciousness at the back of everything changing; otherwise, this life is not possible. He tries to explain that, and then the second book is Kusumanjali, where he gives nine proofs for the existence of Ishwara, of God, against the Buddhist opponent. So this kind of a great logician, you know, he goes to. There's a story that he goes to Jagannath Temple in Puri and for darshan, for the, for the uh, darshan of Lord Jagannath. And at that time the doors are closed because uh, offering is going on, the bhoga offering to the Lord is going on, the doors are closed. So there is a very funny Sanskrit shloka attributed to Udayanacharya. It seems he composed it when he saw the doors closed. He said, my Lord, now you are so proud and you shut your doors to me. But when the Buddhists come and attack you and try to disprove your existence, you run to me for proving your existence. <laughs> <laughs> now you won't let me go in and... I know I have your audience and... All, but, but, you're, but you are helplessly dependent upon me to prove your existence when the Buddhist comes and attacks you. Anyhow, humor apart, this was the situation. Now, what does Advaita bring to the mix? Swami Vivekananda, you wanted a text. Swami Vivekananda practical Vedanta lecture number four where he takes up the Buddhist position, the Hindu dualist position and reconciles it with the Advaita, non-dualist position. There's a lot more to be said about this but I'll mention just this. What does Swami Vivekananda say? Look at the classic example of the snake and the rope. It is not that there is a rope and on top of that there is a snake. That you drive the snake away and then you get the rope. No. These are not two different things, a rope and a snake. The rope is mistaken as the snake. What you think is the snake is the rope itself. Mistakenly, snake. Taken for what it is? Rope. In ignorance, snake. In knowledge, rope. Similarly, he says, both the Buddhist and the Hindu dualist are right. The Hindu dualist is right when he says there is an immortal reality called the soul or God or whatever it is. And the Buddhist is right when he says that there is nothing apart from this, which you call God or uh, soul. It is the same thing which you regard in ignorance as a mass, mass of whirling change, which we see as this world. And in knowledge you will find all of this is nothing other than Brahman. It's not that there is a soul and there is a body, mind and universe separately. Advaita says, There is only one thing. In ignorance, it is regarded as world, as body, as mind, as jiva, in individual, jiva and jagat. In knowledge, when you get brahma jnana, this very jiva jagat becomes none other than brahman for you. You, That's why enlightened persons will keep on saying, I see God everywhere. What does that mean? That person does not say, I see the world and I see God in heaven. Which Vedantin says that? Nobody. They all say, I see God everywhere. Which means, everywhere means where? Here. He might as well say, I see the rope in the snake. He never says, I see a rope and a snake. (laughs) No. It is what you consider to be the snake, the uh, person who knows, he says, it's a rope. It's what we consider to be a mass, a changing mass, a physical mass of change called the body, a mental mass of change called the mind, Known in reality, it is nothing other than Satchidananda. So this is how Vivekananda reconciles it. Now, is it accepted? No. There are scholars who accept it, there are scholars who do not. On both on the Vedantic side and on the Buddhist side, there are uh, scholars and monks and teachers who will not agree that uh, the two are ultimately the same. I remember speaking to a Buddhist lama, In Delhi Delhi University, there was a seminar. The Lama spoke. I also spoke. And afterwards, um, a person in the audience, a lady, said to the Lama, "Um, uh, Holy Lama, what the Swami was saying and what you say, they seem to be very similar. This is the problem with the Hindu mind. They immediately find the oneness behind everything. (laughs) Uh, They don't stress the differences. They stress the unity. So... They, they they are uh, they, they seem to be very similar what you are saying and the, what the swami is saying i was i spoke from the advaita perspective and he spoke from the tibetan buddhist perspective and so the lama he smiled and he said no actually they are different you know there are a lot of differences and i stepped in doing the hindu thing saying yes there are differences but they are different paths they lead to the same <laughs> conclusion you know and then the buddhist not to be outdone the lama said Yes, yes, same meeting point, but after that, again different. (laughs) (laughs) So there are people on both sides who would not agree. uh, But there are scholars who do agree. Um, If you read a book called The Central Philosophy of Buddhism. Central Philosophy of Buddhism. T.R.V. Murthy. You will see Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Madhyamaka Buddhism of Nagarjuna. It's explained in, um, in terms which are very Advaitic, non-dualistic. I've also had occasion to mention Sam Harris, who is a very popular atheist speaker here in the United States. And he says religion is mostly hypocrisy and nonsense, superstition. But he says there are these two traditions. One is Advaita Vedanta and the other one is Tibetan Zokchen Buddhism which have a core of truth in them, and it's the same truth both are, both are speaking about. There is a professor of, uh, of religion, a philosopher actually, in Australia, a lady, Miri Albahari. And I find in her work, she is primarily a scholar of Buddhism, and, and the way she interprets Mahayana Buddhism, especially Madhyamaka Buddhism of Nagarjuna, is very close to Advaita Vedanta of Shankara. And she, she mentions it explicitly. They, they two are very close. Why I mention her is that she is coming to give this talk about Advaita Vedanta and the problem of consciousness in NYU next year. And I have uh, invited her to come and speak here to us. So I really hope she does come and speak to us. But she speaks about exactly this problem. Yes. We have run out of time. You must tell me when the food is ready. You must let me know, yes. So there is a question from the... Yes, please come. And somebody else raised a hand there? Yes, I'll, I'll come back to you. Yes, there's a mic. Please tell us your name and please sit.
4: My name is Shri, and uh, just, I guess, talking about Buddhism, um, I'm thinking of this concept of compassion that yes. the modern Bu- Buddhists are talking a lot about now. And, and with this, I'm asking a very personal question, but I'm, I think it probably affects a lot of people from time to time. So, you know, we try to have compassion and we try to have empathy. And sometimes we think we're doing great. You know, we're around a grieving parent and we can feel everything that they're feeling. And, you know, I guess we must be, well, I must have been tapping myself on the shoulder because the next I meet someone else and they're grieving and I seem to have zero compassion. Mm. I seem to have judgment. And then I continue to sort of beat myself up over not being able to muster any compassion. So then do I just give up and wait for grace or do I keep working at it? That's my question.
0: You see, this is a problem that's inevitable as long as we regard ourselves as individual points of consciousness. That I am an individual among many individuals. And what kind of an individual am I? I am a body and mind. With consciousness. I am a body and mind with consciousness. Then what becomes primary is body and mind. And the way I relate to others as body minds. Now what will happen is, I like some of them. Some of those body minds, I like them. Some of those body minds, I don't like them. Those whom I like, it's easy for me to have compassion and love for them. Those who I do not like, It's not easy for me to have any kind of compassion for them, and yet I'm told to have compassion for everybody. Look at the language. Have compassion for everybody. The moment you say everybody, then there must be something same that you see in everybody so that you can have the same compassion for everybody. Do you follow? Then what is the same thing in everybody? At all times and at all places. There is only one reality which runs through all of us base yourself on the Vedantic reality that you are sat-chit-ananda. You are none other than God. And therefore, everybody that you meet, even whether you like the body-mind or you do not like the body-mind, everybody you meet, the background is the same sat-chit-ananda. When that's no longer theory, when that begins to become reality to you, then you will find having compassion for everybody becomes automatic. Love will become automatic. Compassion will become automatic. Judgment may still come up. The mind has, necess- has a way of judging. But that judgment you can dismiss easily. Because you know beyond whatever you judge. You judge a person to be good. Judge a person to be bad. You make up your mind. This person is bad. A bad body mind. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time you will know that's... Uh, that's Absolutely on the surface, it's superficial. The reality is existence, consciousness, bliss is the one unchanging reality in me, in you, in him, and in her. That's the real basis for compassion. Yeah. Change your concept about yourself. I am not this person, body, mind, called Sri. Shri is really the existence, consciousness, bliss appearing as the body, mind here. Then you will see that everybody else changes automatically for you. And then the problem of compassion, problem of love, the problem of hatred, it will disappear. It will become spontaneous. Love will become spontaneous. Compassion will become spontaneous. If by automatic reaction, hatred or irritation comes, you'll be more and more able to dismiss it easily. Okay, I'll take one last question from the lady there. Could you come up and ask the question? <laughs> you can come to the mic here and ask the question. I hear the food is ready, so we will make this the last question. There's the microphone. Uh,
5: my name is Pat. This is a somewhat confused question, so I apologize to all hungry people um, in the microphone yeah um a Zen master. Was asked and said to me, uh, I asked, what is Buddha mind? And he said, non holding. Now we come to Vedanta and God. The Buddhist idea is continuous motion, voidness is motion, nothing held. But the Vedantic idea, I've been told, is you must not confuse prana with God who does not move but my problem in meditation is how do you get from this from my infatuation
0: with prana
5: prana to the non-moving state
0: right it's not at all a confused question it's a very good question and very precisely put, and most Vedantically put. So, (laughs) uh, yes. Non-holding is the essence of the Buddha mind. And it it applies very equally to the Vedantic mind also. Anything objective that you hold on to as yourself. I am this, I'm holding on to a changing body. It's continuous change. What am I when I say I am this body? I am prana, if I hold on to that, continuously flowing in and out, like the bellows pumping in and out, air flowing in and through me, life forces coursing through me, continuously changing, like the ebb and flow of a tide, prana courses through me. What watches the prana? When you say, I am breathing in, I am aware of breathing in, I am breathing out, I am aware of breathing out, what it I, is it that is aware of the breathing in and the breathing out? The breathing in and the breathing out are the movements of prana. What is it that is aware of the breathing in and the breathing out? That is not moving in and out. That is aware of the movement of the prana. Is it moving itself? No. If you come to the Taittiriya Upanishad, you ask the question, what am I? You start with the body. You clearly see that you cannot be the body for certain reasons. It's external to you. I'm, I feel I'm inside this and I, this is an object. This is something external to me. It is changing and I'm, I am unchanging. It is uh, an object of my experience. I am the subject of the experience. For certain reasons, I cannot be the body. For exactly the same reasons, I cannot be the prana. You're not denying that the prana is there. Let the prana move in and out. You've got to keep on breathing. Yes, Until you're enlightened, you've got to keep on breathing. So, Yes. And then the mind. The mind moves continuously. Look deeper within the prana. Thoughts, ideas come. But you are aware of the movement of the mind. Is it not? And then the intellect. Even that which you are using to understand all of this. You are aware of the movement of the intellect. Anything that you are aware of is not the Atman. In In the microphone, yes.
5: My problem is... It's not thought so much, but when I meditate, I feel this incredible seething energy, which is very nice to feel, hmm. but I can't get beyond that. It's, it's like the energy is right. always there and very pleasurable.
0: But, but you said, look at the words you used, I feel this incredible energy. It feels pleasurable. Yes. I feel this energy. What feels?
5: That's right, but how do I get beyond enjoying the feeling?
0: <laughs> That's you don't have I'm to stuck. <laughs> <talking. laughs> uh, this way, this way. The moment, follow this carefully. The moment you recognize that there is something that is aware of the surging of this energy within me, what you are asking is, how do I stop the energies from surging, or how do I get beyond the feeling of pleasure of in, in reveling in that energy? the Vedantic answer is you don't have to all that you need to notice is that someone something here is aware of that energy just notice that let the energy be there let it seethe within you let it course within you let your mind enjoy that energy too if you cannot sit for long for meditation you feel so energetic you have to get up and walk get up and walk the Atman is not disturbed all you need to notice is that it reveals that surging energy that feeling reveals the ever-present awareness within you. If one day do not feel that energy, you feel tired or quiet. And it is the same awareness which notices that energy, the same awareness which notices the lack or diminishing of that energy. That is what you are. Let the play of prana go on. Why, why disturb it? Let it go on. The, the body, the prana, the mind, these are creations of Ishvara of God. You need not destroy them, to, to, you need not transcend them to become uh, enlightened. You are already beyond them. You need not. And you cannot. How can you get rid of prana? So you get rid of prana, God forbid, then we, we, we die then. So we need, we need not do that either. And we should not do that either. Why not? Here is the crucial, I'll end with this. Here is the crucial secret. It is that very surging of prana which you are noticing. Like a mirror, it reveals your own existence also. The mirror, it's not me, but it reflects my face. The experience of the surging prana, it's not you, it's not the Atman, it's not the real you, but it reveals the real you because it shines in your light. It is revealed in your awareness. It's a door to, to self-realization. Does it make sense? It makes sense, but it's very hard. No. <laughs> you, 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 know, you know what is hard? You know what is hard? Controlling that prana is hard. Controlling that prana, that's what you feel as being hard. Can I control that prana? Can I somehow transcend it, go beyond it, where it ceases to disturb my meditation? That's what you're asking. It doesn't disturb my meditation. It In the is microphone. my meditation.
5: I could do that all day. <laughs> Just surges of energy all over the
0: place. All you need to do is then watch the, the watcher. Watch the watcher means as the surges come and go, it reveals you as the not surging watcher. All the time, all the time. A it just, In fact, it's just a reversal. It's like right now you are immersed in the mirror and delighted by the reflection of your face in the mirror. All you need to do is let the mirror be there. Let the reflection of your face be there. Just remind yourself that's the real face here, not there. What is being reflected here is really me here. So the fascination with the mirror and the face will go away. Right now we are, fa- we are like a person who has forgotten her, his or her real face. And very fascinated with the mirror. Oh, nice. <laughs> huh? And somebody wants to take the mirror away. No, no, no. I'll lose my face if the mirror goes away. But my face is not in the mirror. We know what the problem with the, with the real face is and what the advantage of the mirror is. Mirror reflected face advantage is you can see it. And the problem with the real face is you cannot see it. But once you realize this is the real face which is reflected there, then you're not dependent on the mirror. If you remove the mirror, you cannot see the face anymore. But you know it's there. You're not craving for the mirror. Yes. It will work, don't worry. Just relax. It will work. All right. Um, Before I close, there are a couple of announcements. So, this is the last Ask Swami session until the end of September, because we are closing for summer after today's session. So there will be no cl- no more classes in July and August till the middle of September. The next Ask Swami session will be at the end of September. Um, at this point, I would like to wish everybody a very happy and pleasant summer. I would like to pray to Sri Ramakrishna, Masha and Swami Vivekananda to bless us all with peace and joy. Let none here be touched by sorrow let gladness and joy fill our summer sarve santu sarve santu niramaya ma Dukkha dukha bhagavet i pray to the to and Swamiji to bless all of us here om shanti 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 hari hio tatsat shri ram krishna astu